Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So let me begin by asking a question. Does God truly hate sin? That's a pretty obvious question. Yes, God does hate sin. And if you look at Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now there's other places in the Bible where it says God hates sin, but there are seven specific sins here that God hates. You think about murder, lying, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. Seven specific sins that God hates. What we're going to see in David is him committing these sins that God hates. So if you remember last week, David was kind to Mephibosheth, who was the son of Jonathan, who was crippled in both of his feet, And it was kind of a time of rest for David. And it was his kindness, and he invited him to the table to eat. Well, as we get to chapter 11, David has been a a man after God's own heart. He's been a model of godliness. He's been concerned about godliness and holiness. But that all changes in one evening when he looks out. I call her a bathing beauty. (laughs) He looks out at the bathing beauty, and then everything changes. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read all of chapter 11, and then I'm going to do some teaching on that. Then I'm going to do all of chapter 12, most of chapter 12, and do some teaching on that. And then we're going to go to Psalm 51, because Psalm 51 was specifically written by David after he committed these sins and was pleading for God's forgiveness. So let's, let's pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing. 
and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. It did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah you remained in Jerusalem this day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in the presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to him by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, and if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours no one, and, none, and, and, not, and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David commits a lot of sins in this passage of Scripture, but notice how the narrative ends in verse 27. The thing, the thing singular that David did. So we have to stop and wonder, why does the author call it a thing? Isn't it many things, many sins? There's a lot of sins David commits, but the way it's worded in the Hebrew all of these sins are summed up in one sin. And notice what it says. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now let me tell you, in the original Hebrew, literally it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. What David did was evil in God's eyes. 
So what sins did David actually commit? Well, there's two obvious ones we always go to. Adultery and murder. But, let me just ask you a question. Do big sins happen all of a sudden, or do they come about because little sins are building up that may not be perceived because they're under the surface? So what I want us to do is let's look at all of the sins that David committed in this narrative. Okay, first, he lusted after Bathsheba and broke the commandment of coveting his neighbor's wife. Okay. There is no hint at all in this text that Bathsheba was baiting or seducing or somehow trying to get David's attention. She's minding her own business, taking a bath out on her little area. David has the upper view. She's probably bathing in a private courtyard next to her house, and it just so happens that David's vantage point sees her. Now, she's the daughter of one of David's best fighters. She's the granddaughter of one of David's most trusted counselors. She's the wife of one of David's circle of honored soldiers, which makes this more stinging. It wasn't like she was just some random woman. She was somebody that was close to David's friends. So he breaks the 10th commandment. What's the 10th commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So it's coveting. He wants something he can't have, which is also the same thing as lust. He saw her and he lusted after her. So let's just go back and look. In verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. So this is lust, pure and simple. Okay. Number two, David stole Uriah's wife. He was a thief. Uriah's wife was not something that was his to take. Even as the king, he did not have any right to steal another man's wife. Third, I mean, this is the most obvious, he committed adultery. She's a married woman. David's a married man. He has sex with her. It's adultery. Okay, fourth, he lied about it. He tried to cover it up. What does he do? He sends Uriah home to spend time with his wife so it looks like he was the real father. What, what, is, what does David say to Uriah? Uriah, you've been out on the battlefield. It's been a tough battle. Why don't you go home and relax at your, with your wife? And what does he do? He sleeps on the doorstep, and he says, I can't go in and have sex with my wife when, all the, when everybody else is out here like in the fields and camping out. That just wouldn't be right. And David's like... Come on, dude, I need you to go in there because I need to make it look like you're the one that got her pregnant. So I need you to go in there. Okay, so plan number two. Well, if he's not going to go in there sober, why don't I send him home drunk? So fifth, David got Uriah drunk. Invited him over and said, hey, why don't we have a good time? Gets him drunk and says, maybe, just maybe, 
if he's drunk, he'll go stumble home and he'll go into his house and you know, he'll have, he'll have, he, he may not even remember what happened the night, the night and he wakes up the next day and, and so David causes another man to stumble. Okay, and then sixth, although David didn't pull the trigger per se, it's like didn't, David didn't literally kill Uriah, but he, he, he gave the order. He ordered Uriah's death on the battlefield. What was the order to Joab, his general? You can kind of picture it in your mind. Send everybody out to the front and tell Uriah to charge. And when Uriah charges, have everybody fall back so he's the only guy out there. And when they start shooting arrows, he, he's vulnerable. Um, so it looks like it was an accident on the battlefield, but it was actually David's order. Now, now here's the thing about it. Did you read carefully? David sent the order in a scroll and gave it to Uriah to hand to Joab. If only Uriah would have peaked. Who has more integrity? Uriah has more integrity. He doesn't peek into what he's not supposed to peek into. If he would have opened it, he would have realized, oh, this is my death sentence. Or Uriah is more godly drunk than David was sober in the sense that he didn't go in. So over a few days... David pretty much breaks all the Ten Commandments that you can think of here. He lusts, he covets, he lies, he murders, he commits adultery, and he tries to cover it up. Now, before we get on David and say, David, what are you doing? One thing you should never say is this. I would never do that. Don't be surprised at what type of sin is lurking in your own heart. Don't be surprised at what your sinful heart is capable of doing. All of us are just one lustful thought away from committing a major sin. So we need to make sure that we're not judgmental on David. Yes, he did sin. But before we stand in judgment over David, the man after God's own heart, and say, David, what are you doing? Take a look at yourself and say, if not for the grace of God restraining me, I could possibly do something wicked like that myself. And we'll, we'll talk about temptation here in a little bit. So here's the issue. This whole thing ends with David committing evil in the sight of the Lord. And the sad thing is he thought he got away with it. He thought he put the issue to bed. Now you may ask, well, why did, he take, why did he take Bathsheba as his wife? Wouldn't people know that it was him that was the father? Wouldn't it come out? Well, think about it. It's kind of a sly move by David. David's thinking to himself, here we have this war widow, and she's the granddaughter of one of my trusted advisors. She, you know, she's part of the inner circle of my, of my men. I'll do the noble thing as king, and I'll step up and I'll take her in as my wife. I'll take her in as a widow. I'll do the noble thing and I'll, I'll bring her in. I'll be, I'll, be the, I'll be the noble king. And everybody will look at me and say, oh, he's so compassionate, he's so caring, he did the noble thing by taking care of a widow. And the whole time, what's he doing? He's covering it up and he thinks I put it to bed. No, nobody's going to find this out. It's gonna all, the plan's going to work great. Uriah's dead, he's not going to come back and you know, he's not going to say, it's not, it wasn't me that got her pregnant. Now if she does have the baby, 
it looks like we had sex as a married couple, and so everything's working out great. And maybe nobody ever finds out. But let me ask you a question. This is not what the text, the text doesn't tell us this. We have to use our sanctified imaginations. Do you think, because you've probably experienced this before, even though nobody else found out, who knows what happened? God. Now, I wonder if David, when he lays down at bed at night, is thinking to himself, did I cover all my bases? What if I get caught? What if somebody does find out? He probably had many restless nights. And so David thinks, I put it to bed. Maybe a little bit of nagging guilt, we don't know. But God will not allow David to get away with this, so he sends Nathan the prophet to rebuke Nathan, or David. Now, the king's the king, and the king can say off with your head if he doesn't like what you say. So Nathan can't just walk in. <laughs> Nathan can't just walk into David and say, Hey, king, you're a lying, cheating, murdering womanizer. You're a wretched sinner, and God's mad at you. Because David would either, at best, kick him out or worse, kill him. So what does God do? God sends Nathan to tell David a little parable, a little story. So before we move on to chapter 11, I just want to remind you, I mean, move on to chapter 12. In chapter 11, the way that the writer calls it at the very end is the thing that David did. But we just saw there were six sins that David committed. But you tie them all together, and it, was a, it, was a, it wasn't just one sin in isolation. It was a sin upon sin upon sin upon sin that came up to this huge thing that displeased the Lord. Everything from lying to cheating to stealing to murdering to adultery to covering everything up. So David thinks he gets away with it. He, his conscience is maybe bothered, but he's just hoping he's not found out. So let's go into chapter 12, and let's just look at verses 1 through 15, and let's see how the Lord uses the prophet Nathan to rebuke David. Okay? And the Lord sent Nathan to David. That's important. Did Nathan know what had happened? No, but since he's a prophet, I assume the Lord revealed it to him. So the Lord, Nathan doesn't come in on his own commission and just say, hey, David, I know what happened. I think the Lord purposely, sovereignly sends Nathan in there to confront David because he's a prophet. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men. So, he, so this is like Jesus telling a parable, but it's, this is like a parable. It's an Old Testament parable. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Okay. You see what's going on here? The rich man has a bunch of flocks. The poor man has one tiny precious little lamb it's like his little it's like his little pet he eats at the table he snuggles it's like his little dog like a little dog okay it's my only little my only little lamb here okay here's what happens verse four now there came a traveler to the rich man 
And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. Okay. In that ancient custom, if somebody showed up, you really wanted to prepare a meal for him. And so the man, the rich man that had all the flocks to choose from, he could have chosen from many flocks. He could have killed any lamb to provide food. Instead, what does he do? He goes next door to the poor man and says, you're one little poor little ewe lamb that's your favorite. I'm going to take that and I'm going to kill it and roast it and we're going to serve it for dinner. Okay, now notice that's the end of the parable. Verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So what does David say? This is not right. He stole this man's only little lamb. He's got to pay him back fourfold. This is an injustice. This is not right. He had no pity. He had no compassion. He's a cold-hearted, ruthless man who just stole this other man's poor little, one little ewe lamb. David's incensed. David's, you can see him boiling with anger. And then verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out to the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 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 I've got to be able to see that. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. You are the man, David. So instead of going in and just accusing David to his face, he tells a parable to get David all riled up, and then he turns the tide on David and says, you're, you're the bad guy in this parable. And then David realizes it, and then Nathan begins to speak on behalf of the Lord. So I want to make this very applicable for us tonight. And I think the Holy Spirit has put this in here to help us understand how we deal with sin. So I want to, that's the narrative. It's pretty straightforward, right? We understand what happened between Bathsheba, Uriah. We understand Nathan come in, tell the parable. We're tracking with what's going on. Okay, so we understand just the flow of the story, the historical account. Let's now get into some applications and some um, teachings from these two chapters that help us understand sin, temptation, grace, 
Um, so let me give you seven. Not because it's a biblical number, but probably because it is. <laughs> that's, that's, that, I thought seven would be a good number. Okay. Here's number one. God does truly hate your sin. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord. David did evil. And if you remember back to Proverbs, what does it say? There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination. So Psalm 5, 6 through 4. I mean, five, Psalm 5, 4 through 6. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before you. Your eyes, you hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now this is a pretty scary psalm because it's not just that the Lord hates sin, but the Lord hates the evildoers that do the sin. Psalm 11, 4-5. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And then Habakkuk 1.13, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. We live in a culture that wants to downplay sin. They don't want to call sin, sin. They think God's a God of love. He's going to let me do whatever I want because after all, God's love. Yes, God is love. But can I say, can you say this biblically? God is love and yet hates sin. Is that an oxymoron? No. God is love. Yes. Does God hate sin? Yes. Is there such a thing as sin? Yes. Okay. So that's, that's number one. The, the, the main point of this whole thing is it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord, what David did. God hated, hated the sin that David did. Second, sin often happens during times of boredom and a lack of accountability from others. Now, where do I get this from? Go back to the very beginning of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. What's going on here? David should have gone out to war, but he stays back by himself. Now, up to this point, David has been surrounded with counselors. All the way back to Jonathan, he surrounded himself with men that held him accountable. Here he is, all by himself, a little bit older in life, and he stays back. We don't see him surrounded by counselors. He's taken himself out of accountability. He's all by himself. Now, the text doesn't say he's bored and restless, but what does he do? I have nothing to do. I'm just going to go out on my roof and just kind of hang out. You may have experienced this before in your life. Um, well, they say idleness is the devil's playground. Is that one of the words? Is that, is that a saying or something like that? Look back at your life. Have, maybe even back when you were a kid. Did the times you got in trouble were the times you were bored or restless? When you're doing stuff, 
When your mind's on stuff, when you're being busy and you're being productive, you don't have the time to sit around and, and think about how you're going to sin. Sin. So, there are times that you are given to sin when maybe you're bored, you're restless, and you don't have accountability. So what's the important takeaway from David here? Surround yourself with Christian friends who will lovingly hold you accountable. Don't put yourself in, tempta- in situations where you will be tempted. Deal with your boredom by doing something active and productive. What should have David done the moment he looked down and saw that woman? I better go to war. (laughs) I better flee this situation because if she comes out there every day to bathe, I'm just going to go out there and watch her and it's going to keep happening. So I better get out. I better get myself out of this situation because she's not going to stop bathing and I I don't have the willpower to not walk out on the roof. So I better get productive and I better go to war. Let me get on my horse and go out and meet the men in war. Let Let me be productive. Let me get around my counselors. Let me get around my friends. Proverbs 11, 14. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. He needed to surround himself with an abundance of counselors. Third, and this is an important one because sometimes we get a little bit confused on this. Temptation in and of itself is not necessarily sinful. But the second look or thought that moves to act upon the temptation is sinful. Notice I said even thought. Okay. Just because David saw her down there and was tempted doesn't necessarily mean he sinned unless he lusted. He could have just seen her, and at the moment he's like, whoa, there's a naked woman down there. I better turn around and go. He didn't sin at that point. If he turned his his head and said, i got to get out of here... If he kept looking and had a second look and kept like trying to view her, that's where it turned into sin. Even though he hadn't committed adultery with her yet, he was lusting, he was actually nursing that temptation. James 1, 13-15, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Basically, if the temptation comes, your job is to get rid of the temptation. Not to give in to the temptation. And so you've got to put it to death. When you are hit with a temptation, do you put it to death right away? Or do you let it grow? Do you let it fester? Do you think and ponder upon it? Do you make provision for it? Do you let it go so long that it will eventually give birth? See, how long does it take for a woman to give birth? It's not a trick question. Nine months. There's a long time you can think about committing a sin in the what's called the pregnancy phase before you actually commit the act. Um, make no provision. This, this is an interesting statement that Paul makes in Romans 8 and in Romans 13. In Romans 8, 13, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
we have a responsibility to, to kill or put to death the sin in our lives. And we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got to put it to death. And then in Romans 13, 13 through 14, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the point. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for the What does it mean to make a provision? When you go, when you go camping or hunting or fishing, what do you do? You get everything you need. You make your provisions. You don't just go out and go camping like, I don't have a tent, I don't have a backpack, I don't have a food. You, you make plans so that when you get out there, you're ready. This is saying, don't make plans to sin. Don't make provisions to do that. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What it means is, is that when David saw Bathsheba, the very moment he should have killed that lust, he should have turned away. He should have asked for the Lord's protection. He should have gone back inside, focused his heart on the word, and said, i got to get out of here. If that means i got to go out to war, I've got to surround myself with counselors. I, I, I can't make any more plans. But what does he do? Go back and look at it. Look at verse 3. David sent and inquired about the woman. He couldn't leave well enough alone. What does he do? He takes it once. He could have stood up there day after day and watched her. That way he would have been a voyeur, which is kind of sick in and of itself. But he takes it one step further and says, I want somebody to go fetch that girl for me. Now, if you're a messenger, if you're a servant of the king and the king tells you to go fetch a girl, what do you do? I mean, on fear, of de uh, on fear of either being punished or whatever, you do whatever the king tells you to do. I don't know if this is the right thing for the king to do. I can't tell him it's not the right thing to do, but he's ordered me to do it. So David sends for Bathsheba. He could have stopped right there, and like he saw her, and boom, that's it, I'm done. But he lusted, he coveted, and he took it one step further and says, I'm making provision for the flesh. I'm going to have somebody go down, and we're going to have a connection. We're going to have, introduce me to this woman. And it's interesting because the guy even says, <laughs> notice, what the, notice how diplomatic the servant is there in verse 3. Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? What's he saying in a roundabout way? Do you know who this girl is? She's the granddaughter of one of your trusted counselors. She's the wife of one of your trusted soldiers. Are you sure, David, you want to do this? And like the most diplomatic way they can say it without saying, David, don't do it. Making him think, this is not probably the woman you want to go do this with. And then what does David say? Verse 4, David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Boom, just like that. It's like, I'm not even going to listen to these guys. These guys are kind of trying to tell me not to do it. I don't care. My mind's already made up. I'm having sex with this lady. Now, we're all adults here. I'm just speaking frankly. He's already made up his mind. I'm going to do it. My counselors are gone. I'm by myself. Nobody's going to know. The servants, they're going to keep their mouth shut or I'll kill them. And so I'm going to do what I want to do because I'm the king. After all, everybody's off to war, and I'm bored, and I'm lustful, and I'm going to act upon that. Okay. Fourth, what's another teaching from this passage? The ungodly desires deepen our hearts, 
often lead to outward sins of the body. Okay. It would have been bad enough if David had been a voyeur and just lusted after her and watched her. But he takes it a step further and does what? He acts upon his lust by actually taking her in and, having a, and committing adultery. And so we know what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Outward action. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. David did both. But what came first? The lust in his heart came before the actual adultery. Here's something we just need to think about. Most flagrant outward sins do not just happen by accident. They happen because we nurse our lusts, we ponder our lust, we meditate upon the lust of our heart, and then we don't kill them by the power of the Spirit, and we don't look to Jesus, and then we give in to them. All right, fifth. Premeditated, and this was a premeditated sin. Premeditated sin shows a blatant and flagrant hatred towards God's word. David, in a sense, as the king, made a mockery of God's word, especially the Ten Commandments. I want you to notice a few things in this text. Look at verse 9 and 10 of chapter 10. Verse 9 and 10 of chapter 10. When, I mean, I'm sorry, verse 9 and 10 of chapter 12. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what's evil in his sight? Verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. You've despised the word. What does it mean to despise the Word of God? It means to hate it, to belittle it. And in other words, David wouldn't have said this out loud, but basically he's saying, you know what, I could care less about God's Word at this point. Ten Commandments? What's that? Thou shalt not commit adultery? Well, that's a good suggestion, God, but I could care less. I'm the king. Do not commit murder? Do not covet? Do not lie? Nah. He acted as though he could care less about God's word. And then look at verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord. Earlier it was you've despised the word of the Lord. This was you've utterly scorned. This is a different Hebrew word. It means to reject or blaspheme. You've actually rejected and blasphemed God's word. You've hated God's word, you've neglected God's word, you've scorned God's word, and you've blasphemed God's word. These are strong statements about how God treated, or how David treated God's word. Now, you may not be thinking that when you're sinning, you're hating God's word. But in a sense, when you neglect God's word and you just say, ah, God's word, I could take it or leave it, I know what it says, but I'm going to do it anyway. Let me just say this. Most Christians don't sin out of ignorance. We know what God's Word says. We know what God's Word says. When we sin, what are we saying? It's worse, okay? 
when somebody commits a crime, what do they say? Ignorance is no excuse. Like if you were ignorant of the law, you still broke it. You still broke the law, but you're ignorant of it. As Christians, we know what God's word says. When we break it and say, I could care less, that's actually worse. Because you're basically saying, I know what God's word says, but I'm just going to spurn it anyway. I'm going to scorn it anyway. I'm going I'm to reject it anyway. Because after all, I know better than God, and I want to do this. So instead, what should we as believers do when we're faced with temptation? What do you think David should have done in that moment? Well, he was a writer of the Psalms. He should have quoted one of his own Psalms. Now, he didn't write Psalm 119, but Psalm 119, 9 to 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Okay, the, the text doesn't say what David should have done, but we've, we saw this a few weeks ago. Let me ask you a question. I'm not going to take us back to Deuteronomy 17, but if you go back to Deuteronomy 17, God gives the instructions for the king. What was the king supposed to have right next to his throne? His own copy of God's word. What should have David done the moment he lusted after Bathsheba? I'm going to go sit on my throne and pull out my own copy of the Bible and read God's word. I'm going to go to God's word. I'm going to keep my I'm going to hide God's word in my heart to keep me not from sinning. And so one of the key ways that you not give in to sin is to hide God's word in your heart. Memorize scripture, meditate on scripture, have the scripture always on your heart and mind. All right, sixth. Unconfessed sin blinds us to reality and may make us irrational and willing to justify our actions at all costs. Unconfessed sin. Now, at this point in chapter 11, has David confessed his sin? In chapter 12, when Nathan comes in with the parable, does, Nathan's clueless when David's telling him this parable. Like, why are you telling me a parable about two guys with sheep? I'm, tra- I'm kind of tracking with you, Nathan, but what's this all about? And David basically erupts in anger, and then he's blind. In other words, David is totally blind to the fact that he is a sinner. I can get away with it. I can justify it. I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. I can even act irrationally and do things that I think I didn't think I'd ever do. So sometimes sin leads us to act irrationally. We do things we thought we'd never do to cover our tracks. We live in fear. We live in guilt. We often justify our actions at all costs. And that's probably what David was doing at this point. I've got to cover my tracks. I've got to make this hidden. I've got to make sure nobody finds out. Everything's good. I may be nervous. I'm looking around the corner. I'm trying to cover my tracks. I'm, I'm living in guilt and fear. If somebody finds out, Nathan comes in and tells the story, and all of a sudden, you're the man. You're the man. He points that bony finger in David's chest and says, you've been found out, David. You're the sinner. You're the murderer. You're the adulterer. You're the thief. You're the liar. You're the one that's despised and scorned God's word. Now, here's the seventh thing. The 
and this is very important, God absolutely forgives our sins through Christ. And we'll talk about this in, in great detail here in a minute. But we may have to live with the devastating consequences. Just because God forgives doesn't mean there's no consequences that you have to deal with. Now, those consequences differ based upon the sin, based upon the situation, God's sovereignty, the, the people that have been affected. But look at verse 13. This may make you a little mad. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the, for his first confession of sin. What does he say? And notice what he says. I've sinned against the Lord. Now, that's true, but who did he also sin against? Uriah. Bathsheba, Bathsheba's family, and really the nation of Israel as king. But then Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, one of the things that David does not do here, which is good, David does not blame anybody else. Do you see David here saying, well, if Bathsheba wasn't so beautiful, I wouldn't have been attracted to her. If Uriah would have just done what I said, it would have all worked out. The devil made me do it. I mean, whatever. David's not looking for a loophole to get out of this. He basically just says, I've been caught, red-handed, and it says, I have sinned against the Lord. He simply confesses his sin. I've sinned against the Lord. And God forgives him. The word to put away means to remove guilt, to pass over. It literally means that God banished or kicked out David's sin. Now, let's stop real quick. This is not in your notes, but I want to address it. What should David have deserved for committing murder and adultery? Death by stoning. He should the death penalty. Because notice what David what notice what Nathan says. The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Okay. Now you may say, well, why, why does David get away with it? Well, here's a theological reason why David. David does not get away with it. David's sins are covered, but here's the point. God cannot kill David because David is the lineage of Jesus. David has to stay alive, even though he sinned which shows a beautiful picture of forgiveness that God didn't kill David when he deserved to be killed. God forgave him, but David would have to live with the consequences for the rest of his life. Look at verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite by, um, by your wife. And you see what happens here. And the, the rest of David's life, from here on out, there's going to be fighting and bloodshed and murder within his own family. And we'll see that in the coming weeks. He's going to have to deal with rebellion and treachery and from his very own son, Absalom, who leads a rebellion against him. And so from this point forward, David's life will never be the same. It's going to be a heartache from here on out. And so think about David's life for a moment. We've, we've, we've been looking at his life for many months now. How did his life start? He faced Goliath. 
And then for a long period of time, he was on the run against Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. David was innocent. Remember how many times, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to kill Saul. I'm doing the right thing. He was a victim. He was suffering. He, was, he could have a clear conscience. He was always in the right. I plead my innocence before the Lord. If you go read like between like the beginning of the Psalms, like Psalm 1 through Psalm 30, I'm in the Psalms right now, almost every Psalm, David is pleading his innocence before the ungodly. But from this day forward, David can't say that because he sinned. And yes, God forgives him, but he'd have to deal with the consequences. So that's what we see in both of the narratives. Chapter 11, we see the sins that, that David did that was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 12, we see Nathan come and rebuke him. We see the confession of David. We see forgiveness, but we also see consequences. Now, what I want you to do is let's turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And I want you to read... There's what we call an uninspired superscript that's right next to the, the number 51. What does Psalm 51 say? Not verse 1, but what does it say right next to it? What does your, what does your Bible say? Mine says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Does yours say that? That's pretty specific. That's what we just looked at. So David writes this psalm in response to what Nathan came and said, you're the man. What we just saw. Okay, so in 2 Samuel 12, all it says is David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, your sin's been forgiven. Here's where David pours his heart out. Okay? And so what we see in Psalm 51 are really, I want to say, four stages Four major stages of biblical confession and repentance. So, David's heart's been broken. David's been revealed as the sinner that he is. He knows he sinned against God. And he goes in and he pours his heart out here in Psalm 51. This is David pouring his heart out to the Lord. And so from this, we find out the great forgiveness that God gives to us when we sin. Now think about David here. What have we just said David's done? He broke like almost all the commandments. So if a man after God's own heart can flagrantly break the Ten Commandments and be forgiven, how much more does that mean for us when we sin that God can forgive us? So let's look at these four stages of biblical confession and repentance. Okay, stage one. The only way we can confess sin is because of God's merciful character. We see this in verses 1 and 2. What's the first thing that David says? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your chesed, your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. The very first thing David does is he appeals to God's mercy and steadfast love. And the word for steadfast love is hesed. 
That rich Hebrew word that means that God is faithful to his covenant promise. He's tenacious about keeping his promise. He can be trusted. He loves his people. It's a relentless and covenant love. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Okay, when you sin and you go before the Lord, the only thing you can do is appeal to God's mercy. Appeal to God's compassion. Because what do we really deserve? Now, as Christians, we know our sins have been forgiven. But if we didn't have the, if we did not have the blood of Christ covering us, what would we deserve? Hell. And so David comes in, and before he starts saying, poor pitiful me, he basically says, God, the, the only way I can come to you is because of who you are. You're a merciful God. You're a faithful God. You're a loving God. You're the only one that can blot out my sin. And, when, and the word blot out, blot out my transgressions, this is a, a strong way for basically saying, David says, God, I want you to totally get rid of the sin in my life. I need it totally gone. I don't want any remnant of this sin. I want you to cancel it forever. I want you to wipe the slate clean. I need this ultimate forgiveness. I need, my, I need all the sins that I've done to Bathsheba and to Uriah and all of this stuff. I need, I need it to be wiped out. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. God does blot out our transgressions. God does forgive. So it's interesting, before David actually starts confessing his sin, he's not even confessed the sin yet. He starts by saying, so stage one is, before I even confess sins, I've got to know who it is I'm coming to ask for forgiveness from. It's a holy, righteous God who is forgiving, who is loving, who does have steadfast love. Christ has died for me, and I can appeal to his mercy for me. So that's, that's stage number one. Before we even confess sin, we've got to know who it is that we're coming to, and it is a God of compassion, a God of forgiveness, a God of love, a God of mercy. But stage two is we must confess our sin. You've got to be pretty specific about it. Now, what does confession of sin really look like? Well, look at verse three. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Confession acknowledges your personal sin against a holy God. David's owning up to it. What's he basically saying? I know I've sinned. They're ever before me. I know what I've done wrong. I'm acknowledging it. I'm not covering it up. Psalm 32.5 Psalm 32 is also, some scholars believe Psalm 32 is also written as a psalm where David, after David committed adultery with Bathsheba, although Psalm 51 specifically says that. Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals 
Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now we may be a little confused by that. Against you and you only. Well, no, David, you sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against a bunch of people. Why are you saying that it was only against God? Well, he's not downplaying the reality of these other offenses. What he's saying is, when I sin, it's first and foremost against a holy God. Yes, I sin with other people and I sin against other people, but ultimately my sin is against my God. And back in chapter 12, I just put it up there, we, we, 2 Samuel 12, 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin, you shall not die. I've sinned. Against you and you only have I sinned. I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to own up to it. I'm going to know the serious gravity of it. I'm going to confess it. It does me no good to hide it. I'm going to come out to the... God, you know it anyway. But I'm going to confess it. But also... Confession recognizes that God is absolutely just in punishing sin if he, if he wanted to. Notice what the, the second part of verse 4 says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God is justified to hold us accountable. God has every right to obliterate us off the map if he wanted to. God has every right to not, God will not punish Christians because our sins are punished in Christ, but God may discipline us. And David's basically saying, God, if I face discipline from this or if I face the consequences from this, you're absolutely right in doing that. I can't tell you what to do. If I have to face the consequences for my sin, God, you have every right for me to, have to face those consequences. You're just. You're right in doing that. All right, look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is the doctrine of total depravity, meaning that confession knows that your sin really stems from your heart. Behold, you delight truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Why do we sin? Because we're born sinners, we were conceived sinners, and sin comes from the heart. Why did David commit adultery? Because it was in his heart first. And Jesus tells us that. And, 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 and Mark 7, 20-23 Jesus said, what comes out of the person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You go back and look at that list and think, okay, David, you did pretty much most of those. Okay, so the first two stages of confession. Number, stage number one is I'm appealing to a merciful God. I want my sins totally blotted out, and I, I'm appealing to your mercy. Number two, I'm confessing the sin. I'm owning up to the sin. 
I'm not hiding the sin. I'm not covering the sin. I'm, I'm, I'm coming clean. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oftentimes we focus on the first part of that verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. But we often don't think about the second part. That's a question. What's the difference between forgiveness and cleansing? Why does he say forgive us our sins and cleanse us? Let me just ask it this way. When you sin, do you not feel guilty for what you've done? When you feel kind of dirty and you need to have that experiential cleansing to know that, that God loves you and God's forgiven you. So God promises to not only forgive that sin, to get rid of that sin, to, to throw that sin as far as the east as the west, but he promises to cleanse you, to cleanse your heart. To give you that sense that, that you're close to God. Now, what happens when you sin? Do you feel close to God or do you feel far away from God? You feel far away. I'm sure the whole time David was living in sin, he wasn't sitting on his throne having his quiet time reading his Bible. But I bet you things changed big time when Nathan came in. And so the next part or stage three of confession and repentance is we must pray for renewal and restoration. Not that you lose your salvation if you're a Christian, but you lose that intimacy, you lose that closeness, you lose that connection. So notice what, what David prays. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Jesus does more than just cancel our sin. He powerfully creates within us a new heart. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew. David's like, you know what? I've, I've been beaten up by this sin. And I've confessed this sin. And I feel far away from you, God. I need you to renew me. I need you to restore me. I need you to give me that joy. I need, you to, to know, I need, to, I need to know that, that you've forgiven me. I want that closeness. I want that cleansing. I want to know that I am a new creation in Christ. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. Now, verse 11 is very interesting. What does verse 11 say? There's a lot of theological things we can th say about this. We won't go down that track. But cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, what's David asking for there? In the context of his prayer, he's basically saying, God, I want an awareness of your presence. I'm, I want to know that you're never going to leave me or forsake me. Now, we can get into a debate here about the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and if, and if David was speaking literally about the Holy Spirit literally leaving him, or if he was speaking metaphorically. 
What do we do know about the New Testament? Once the Holy Spirit lives in you, what happens? He never does leave you. So really what David is longing for is that renewed sense of God's presence in his life. That renewed sense of cleansing. Yes, I'm close to God. I've been far from God. My sin separated me from God. But So number one, stage one, I've appealed to God's mercy. God, you're merciful. I, I have to appeal to your mercy. Please just totally get rid of my sin. Stage two, I confess my sin. I own up to my sin. I don't hide my sin. I get specific about my sin. Stage three is, Lord, I, that, that intimacy's been broken. I, I've been far from you. I want to be back with you. I want that intimacy. I want that joy. I want, that, I want my spirit restored. I want to have that closeness with you. I want to have that renewed sense that, that things are going to be okay, that you're working in my life. But then there's stage four. And stage four is you actually need to repent of the sin. So verse 13 through 17, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God. You will not despise. David wants to go into basically church. <laughs> I will, verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Uh, verse 13, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He's talking about making sacrifices. This is all about being around other believers in worship. And so part of, part of repentance means that you don't Hide out as loners in isolation, but you make yourself accountable to others in church and enjoy worshiping with others. David's basically saying, at this point, I cannot retreat back into being a loner. That's what got me in trouble the first place. I didn't go out to war. I didn't have counselors around me. So David is basically saying, I want to be around people in church. I want to be around the congregation. I, I need that support system. I need to be in worship. That's where I'm going to be fed and supported and encouraged. And David knows that his blood guilt deserves the death penalty. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltness, O Lord. He knows he deserves the death penalty because of what he's done. Again, he doesn't try to brush it under the carpet. I would say this. This is not true in all cases, but in some cases. So that's why I say probably or sometimes. One of the main reasons you sin in the first place is because you lost connection with other believers and were influenced by the world. So, what are the stages? Stage one is, I'm appealing to God's mercy alone, His steadfast love. He's a God who loves me. And because He loves me and I'm His child, number two, I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going I'm to open up to God. I'm not going to hide it. I'm going I'm to confess it. He's going to forgive me. He's going to cleanse me. Stage three is I want that renewed intimacy. Yes, God's forgiven me, but I want that closeness. I want that intimacy. I want that renewed sense of God's presence. And the last thing is I need to really repent by holding myself accountable. I want to be around other believers. I'm going to live a life that you know, is a life of change. Okay, you'd think the psalm is done then. How do you deal with verses 18 and 19? You'd think the psalm should end at verse 17. Okay. 
Got two more verses. They almost seem like they're out of context. Be, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. The bulls will be offered on your altar. Like a total change of subject. What's going on here? What's the deal with Zion and Jerusalem and build up the walls? of David's been like personally confessing his sin and personal, personal, personal. But I want you to understand something. Yes, David is personally confessing his sin before the Lord, but who is David? He's the king. And because he's the king, the stakes are higher. Kind of like a pastor, the stakes are higher. Now, Every Christian should go through this time of confession, but for David, it's very specific. So they seem to be totally out of, out of context, unrelated, because David's been personal up to this point. But what we see here is this. The Old Testament had the principle of what we call either federal headship or solidarity. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that is, so let me give you an example. When Adam sinned in the garden, did, did it just represent Adam, or did what he do affected everybody? What Adam did affected everybody. When Moses sinned, did it just affect Moses, or did it affect the whole nation? When David sinned, did it just affect him, or did it affect the whole nation? In other words, the Old Testament has this idea that if the leader sins, it's going to have a ripple effect. So, David is king of the nation, and he knows that his sin is not in a vacuum. His sin affects the entire nation. What's the saying? What stays in Vegas? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? Not when you're the king. It affects the entire nation. Because, so, David, this, so Psalm 51, okay, so think about it so far. David has a private encounter with Bathsheba. It's private. Nobody else knows about it except for the servants. The nation doesn't really know. Okay. Nathan comes into David. It's private. The nation doesn't know. Psalm 51, David is confessing between him and the Lord. But at some point, is David's personal sin as king going to affect the entire nation? Yes. And so these last two verses are his way of praying for his role as king, and that God would protect the entire nation. And so it's the same principle today. Your private sin is not your own private sin. It affects the body of Christ. What you do as an individual has profound effects on the health of this church. What David did as a private person, because he's a king, had impact on the entire nation. And that's why verses 18 and 19 are there is a prayer for God to protect the nation. Because David may be fearful that because of my sin, the nation's going to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Well, why would you want to build up the walls of Jerusalem? Maybe David's thinking, my sin's going to cause Jerusalem to get... God, God may discipline the whole nation because of what I did. God could say, David, you sinned. Now I'm going to bring discipline not only on you, but the entire nation because you're king and you represent the nation. So David, in his confession of sin, is saying, Lord, don't just restore me, but do it for the sake of the entire nation because I, I'm representative of the entire nation. Okay. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. 
very important passage of Scripture. My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, does God hate sin? Does God want us to sin? No. I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God's will for us is not to sin. God hates sin. We're not supposed to sin. That's the ideal. But what happens? Do we sin? Yes. But if we sin, what does that passage of Scripture say? We have an advocate. What's an advocate? It's a mediator, a go-between, an intermediary, an intercessor, a substitute. Who is the one? When we sin, who's the one that stands in our defense? Who's the one that's there for us? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Our advocate is Jesus. And, and how can we be forgiven when we sin? How can we have a right relationship with God when we sin? Because Jesus made propitiation. What's propitiation? He's the propitiation for our sins. That's just a big word that simply means that when Jesus died on the cross in our place, he took the full punishment and justice of God on himself. He absorbed the penalty of God's anger against sin in his body so that we would never experience the righteous anger and justice of God. God should have killed David. God did not kill David, but covered his sin. Now you may ask, well, when was David's sin paid for? Did he have to pay for his sin? When was his sin paid for? Turn your Bibles to Romans. This is not in your notes. It just popped into my head. So we will go there. Romans chapter 3. It's got that propitiation language. Romans 3.23. We know what that... Let's just start with Romans 3.23. Everybody there? All right. Should have that one at least memorized. It's pretty short and pretty easy. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that, by, that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God passed over former sins. When God passed over David's sin, God said, you're forgiven. But was that sin paid for? Not until Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, David's sins were fully paid for, in retrospect. Now, David died and went to heaven, but God passed over those Old Testament sinners' sins. And then when Jesus died on the cross, He died for the Old Testament believers' sins. And He died for our sins. So Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, anybody that believes in Jesus that's going to heaven, 
Jesus paid for their sins. And so the point is this. The only way we can truly understand God's mercy and God's kindness is because Jesus died in our place. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is the one that completely forgives all of our sins. And when he died on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. Past, present, and future. And so we can be like David and say, yeah, I sinned big time. But I have, so let me say it this way. Our sin is great, but God's grace is greater than our sin. We may be big sinners, but we have a big Savior. We may have committed many sins, but we have a Savior that can overcome our sins. And that's not an excuse to go out and send your heart out, but it is to say, let's be real realistic here. David was a man after, David was not a pagan Canaanite. David was a man after God's own heart who walked with the Lord, had a moment of weakness, a moment of lust. He acted upon it, did evil, but then he was restored. God forgave him. God restored him. God wiped away his sin. God renewed that intimacy. You hear his heart cry in Psalm 51 that God did blot out his iniquities. And so we have the confidence that if God can do that to David, he's the same God that can forgive us and give us grace and give us mercy. So, we've got about 10 minutes left. Are there any questions or comments or observations? Nothing on Facebook. All right. Okay, make sure it's not a hard one, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, this is, okay, so when you read the Psalms, this is a question that comes up a lot. Like, if you read the Psalms, and David keeps saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, and I haven't done any wrong, and I'm not a wrongdoer, it doesn't mean that he's, that he's earning his salvation by being good. You have to read the Psalms as if they, the writer of the Psalms is already in a covenant relationship with God. So they're already saved in the sense that they have a relationship with God. Now, David, when he's talking about salvation, he's not thinking Jesus of Nazareth dying on the cross for my sins and rising again and I'm having salvation. He is understanding it from his point in time in redemptive history where God is his Savior and God has rescued him and he's believing in the God of Israel and he understands the sacrificial system and how it points to the need for his sin to be forgiven by a substitute. So salvation in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, is not the fullness of salvation the way we understand it with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
we have the full picture. So when we look back and we read about salvation, we can fill in the gaps and say, oh, we know what the fullness of salvation is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But we know that David didn't have that full picture. He just understood it as a way God's rescuing in him, God's taking care of him, God's being his, his protector and his God. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. That's what he's asking for, the joy of his. He wants to have that joy of knowing that God is close. He doesn't, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, restore to me my salvation, as if he lost it. He says, restore the joy of my salvation. So here's what happens. When you sin, you don't lose your salvation, but you can lose the joy of your salvation. Does that make sense? Because that guilt. And so what David wants is, I know I'm saved, and I hate to use feelings. I know I'm saved, but I don't feel saved. So Lord, restore to me the joy of knowing your presence in a deep way. I know I can't lose my salvation, but I can lose the joy and the intimacy of having that connection with, with God. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> quarterbacking your worst day oh yeah yeah <laughs> anybody else nothing all right well let's pray well father in heaven we are so thankful that you are a god of forgiveness you are a God of compassion. You're a God who blots out all of our iniquity. Lord, we know in our heart of hearts that we've sinned against you in many ways. We've sinned in our thoughts, we've sinned in our words, and we've sinned in our deeds. And as if you kept a record of wrongs, who could stand before you? But with you there is steadfast love and abundance of mercy. And Lord, help us to learn from David not only just how to avoid sin, but also, Lord, help us to understand that when we do sin, we have a blueprint with Psalm 51 that shows us how we can go about confessing. And Lord, my prayer is if there's anybody here tonight that's just struggling with sin in their life or struggling with feelings that they're not, maybe they, they don't feel forgiven from you or maybe there's just something in their heart, Lord, that you would give them a sense of peace, give them an overwhelming sense of your love, and, and Lord, let them know that um, if they've truly confessed their sins, you've separated their sin as far as the east is from the west and that you have done a great work in their heart. And so, Lord, help us to leave this place with joy. Help us to leave this place with hope, knowing that you love us and that you forgive us and that with you there's an abundance of mercy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.